When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. As always, fantastic to have you with us for a busy hour ahead. Get my teeth in. A cautious calm across Israel as Prime Minister Netanyahu presses pause on his judicial reform overhaul, saying a one-month delay will allow real debate on the way forward. Protesters responding with a pause of their own, but critics say Netanyahu is merely buying time at the expense of democracy. We'll discuss how the country's widening political divide over these reforms and other social issues has impacted business sentiment in particular. The CEO of Israeli payroll management firm Papaya Global has called on other CEOs to withdraw some cash from banks in protest. She'll join us later to discuss. And no protest pause in France, meanwhile, where a tenth day of anti-pension reform demonstrations are just getting underway. President Macron still refusing to budge on the issue, further inflaming French anger. We're going to be live in Paris in just a few moments' time for the latest there. And in Washington, the U.S. Senate beginning a first round of hearings into the causes of the two recent regional bank collapses and what should have been done to prevent them. The U.S. brokered and backstopped deal to sell SVB assets to the First Citizens Bank announced on Sunday helping to further improve bank investors' sentiment, along with word that the U.S. may extend its emergency bank lending facility to help stabilize other troubled lenders. Stable is one thing, but at what price? If banks ultimately lend less, small businesses could suffer and that could cost jobs. We'll discuss with Allianz and Gramercy advisor Mohamed El Arian later in the show. He's warning about potential rolling credit contractions that could increase the chance of recession. For now, global investors are banking on banking calm. U.S. futures consolidating after a mostly higher close on Monday. As you can see, Europe relatively flat after a positive Asian handover, where news from tech giant Alibaba really stole the show. Shares set to rally some 9% in U.S. trade amid word that the behemoth is splitting into six individual parts with five potential IPOs or fundraisers in focus. This news coinciding with Jack Ma's first public appearance in a year. There are no coincidences. More on all of that in just a few moments' time, too. But first, the French government warning of a high risk to public order. As protests by French unions enter their 10th day, they are continuing to reject a reform law which raises the pension age from 62 years old to 64. And Sam Kylie joins us now and is there. Sam, who's out there protesting and what are they telling you about the why? Well, Julia, as you said in your intro, this is uh, day 10 of the uh, protests. Uh, That is the official protest, if you like, organised by the trades unions that have been going on since mid-January. That's not counting the spontaneous street protests that erupted uh, Thursday, a week ago last Thursday, following the adoption 
by uh, the government of the legislation that would change the pensionable age from 62 to 64 without a vote in the National Assembly. That arguably has galvanised a lot of the street protests, but these both sides, both the government and the union, are begging their, the, the demonstrators here to remain non-violent. And that is because, particularly over the weekend, in an unconnected environmental dispute, there was a lot of violence between demonstrators and the police. There are concerns that things could get a lot more violent later on today. But the main problem for the unions, and they sort of acknowledge this, is that legis in terms of legislation, this move from 62 to 64 in terms of the pensionable age in France is effectively a done deal. All they can hope for now is a U-turn from the government. They have implored the Macron administration to sit down to talks, to avoid an escalation here, to avoid this sort of escalation that even the government ombudsman is saying has got to be avoided, condemning both sides for violence over the weekend, both the police and the demonstrators, that is. The unions want Macron to sit down to talk, but Macron is simply saying, no, it's a done deal, it's got to come through, it's got to be done for budgetary reasons. He re re regrets these reforms, but he says they're a done deal. So their question for the unions is, what do they do next? Can they continue to maintain the pressure uh, and do damage, ultimately, to the French economy with these widespread strikes that have been so affecting France for the nearly two months now? Yeah, and unsure whether anything will uh, cause the president to change tack here. Standing firm for now. Sam, great to have you with us. Thank you. Sam Kiley there. Now on to a devastating fire in Mexico. Nearly 40 lives lost at a migrant detention center near the U.S. border. Rafael Romo joins us now with the latest. Rafael, has everyone been accounted for and, and what do we know about how this fire may have started? Yeah. Hi, Julia. They're in the process of still trying to do that. And the death toll as a result of this very tragic blaze now stands at 39 and officials fear it may go even higher. It happened late Monday at a detention center in Ciudad Juarez across the border from El Paso, Texas. The fire swept through the migrant detention center, according to a statement from Mexico's National Migration Institute. We have heard from Andrea Chavez. Uh, she is Ciudad Juarez's federal deputy, a member of the Mexican Congress, who said in a tweet early on today that Mexico's attorney general had launched an investigation into the blaze. Let me read to you what she said. She says, it is with deep sadness and grief that we learned of the fire that occurred inside the INM in Ciudad Juarez. We will wait for the official information. And from this moment on, we send our condolences to the families of the migrants. FGR, meaning the, uh, the attorney's office, initiated the investigation. She said, Ciudad Juarez, Julia, as you know, is located in the Mexican border state of Chihuahua. And now there's word from the state governor's office. In a statement, it said that the fire happened after more than 70 migrants who were loitering in the streets of Juarez were detained. Officials also say there are dozens of people who were injured. Ciudad Juarez is a border city where many immigrants from different parts of the world arrived, uh, hoping to get across the border to seek asylum in the United States. As it has been the case with other border towns, there has been multiple riots and tense situations in the last few years due to the fact that there's not enough shelters that can accommodate all of these migrants. And Julia, in a later release from Mexico's National Migration Institute, officials said among the injured, there were 68 men from Central American countries. It also said an additional 29 people were transported to local hospitals. Now back to you. Yeah, thanks, Rafael. An awful tragedy in many respects. Rafael Romo there. 
Okay, pressing pause in Israel, but for how long? Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu putting a temporary hold on judicial reform plans, which have resulted in widespread unrest and division across the country. He says he owes a responsibility to the nation. When there's a possibility to prevent civil war through dialogue, I, as Prime Minister, am taking time out for dialogue. I give a real opportunity for a proper dialogue. That promise has not stopped protesters who say they will continue taking to the streets. The country's largest labor union has called off a general strike, but says there'll be another if the legislation is revived. Haddis Gold is in Jerusalem for us. Haddis, and that's the big question now, is whether this will be revived after Passover or whether it's a permanent pause. And I guess what does compromise look like if that is a possibility? Well, Julia, the prime minister actually vowed that this would be temporary, that this would be picked up again in the next parliamentary session in some form or fashion. That session begins at the end of April and runs until the end of July. Nitamar Ben-Gvir, the uh, far right wing minister of national security, said that Netanyahu promised him that if the reforms are not brought forward with negotiations, that they will be pushed forward as they stand right now, which would give the Israeli parliament unprecedented power over the Supreme Court, including the ability to overturn Supreme Court decisions. Of course, of course, as I'm sure you have been reporting, this has caused a lot of alarm across Israeli society, especially in the business sector, the typically apolitical high tech sector. Uh, we've been hearing from companies, startups who say they are not putting they're not putting any of their new funding into Israel out of fears about what these reforms could do to the economy. Even the governor of the Bank of Israel speaking out against the hasty way that these reforms have been pushed through. Now, the opposition has for months been calling for a this legislation, saying that they want to come to talks, but they're not going to come to talks unless the legislative process is put on hold. So now it has been put on hold. The question will be, what will these negotiations look like? We're getting reports from Israeli media that the negotiating teams are being formed amongst the coalition members, amongst the opposition leaders, and that they will are supposed to be meeting at the Israeli president's residence, Isaac Herzog, who has said that he wants to host negotiations. And of course, now comes the hard part, the compromise reforms. What will they look like? Will they satisfy the opposition? Will they satisfy the protests? Will they satisfy perhaps most importantly for Netanyahu, the right-wing flank of his government that helps keep him in power. Because if they're not satisfied with whatever this compromise looks like, they could potentially pull their support. And then Benjamin Netanyahu is no longer prime minister. So as of right now, it seems like things have calmed down just a bit. As you noted, the general strike has been called off. But the protesters are vowing to continue. Essentially, they don't believe Benjamin Netanyahu. And they say that they will not stop until this legislative reform is completely off the table. Julia? Yeah, clearly described. Stuck between the protests and the people and the politics. Um, Haddis Gold, thank you so much for that. And later in the show, we'll hear from an Israeli fintech unicorn taking a stand against the current situation. That's in around 25 minutes time. In the meantime, we'll open our door wider to the world. That was the message from new Chinese Premier Li Chang as he welcomed business leaders, including a small group of foreign executives, to the China Development Forum. The leaders included Apple's Tim Cook, Samsung's Lee Jae Yong, and Bridgewater's Ray Dalio. Mark Stewart joins us on this. Mark, I think we have to make clear that for many of these business leaders, this is the first time that they've been in China since 2019, and it comes amid a serious geopolitical deterioration between the US and China too. So how was the message delivered and how was it taken? Yeah, well said, Julia. I also want to point out it's not just the names of the CEOs that's attention getting. It's the industries they represent. 
finance, pharmaceuticals, and tech. And this is all happening at a time when, as you said, China is facing some really strong and difficult economic challenges, including just basically waking up out of the COVID lockdown. We're talking about an aging population. We are talking about um, a government that has been very strong with regulation. So when we have Chinese Premier Li Chung make a very public declaration by saying that it's open for business in front of all of these noticeable um, business people, it has a lot of weight. And Li Chung made some very important points. One, he said that China will respect international laws and international trade rules. In addition, he stressed the point that China will create perhaps an equitable platform for all of these businesses, all of this foreign investment to take place. But China's economic difficulties, its challenges, aren't just coming from within. China is also facing a lot of challenge from outside its own borders, from places such as India, from Vietnam, which have all been courting American companies as well as companies from around the globe. In addition, a recent survey by the American Chamber of Commerce found that American interest in investment in China has declined. It's waned compared to years in the past when it typically was a go-to place, especially for manufacturing. So, Julia, the economic story for China post-COVID is still very much to be written. Mm, Absolutely. Mark Stewart, great to have you with us. Thank you. Now, China's extended hand to global corporate leaders comes amid a surprise announcement from one of its mightiest tech firms, Alibaba. The firm getting set to split into six separate units, its biggest corporate overhaul ever. The hope is clearly to unlock value. Alibaba's share price has fallen more than 20 percent over the past year. Claire Sebastian joins us now. It's interesting to see what the hope is. I have so many questions on this. Um, Is this and does this signify a further regulatory easing, as has been promised by officials there? Or are six smaller companies easier to control than one behemoth? Yeah, Julia, I think it could be it could be both, really. All right? of the I mean, above. I think clearly, yeah, they're <laughs> prioritizing growth, and this uh, should, in the words of Alibaba, unlock shareholder value uh, and better positions. They say Alibaba's business to become more agile. Certainly, uh, if you look at the futures of, of Alibaba in New York, uh, investors seem to to like the idea. So there is that. We know that China has in some ways been softening its stance on tech after uh, quite a long uh, period of cracking down on it ever since that uh, infamous now speech that Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, gave in October 2020, criticizing the Chinese authorities for stifling innovation. Interesting timing because he also made an appearance uh, this week back in mainland China visiting a school after a more than year-long absence. So perhaps the two are connected. Perhaps this was somehow a signal to Alibaba to, to roll out this plan. But on the other hand, this does break Alibaba down potentially into these six business groups. Five of them will have the right to, to IPO separately, the company says, if they want to, to fundraise separately, which could amount to essentially a spin-off. That then creates a smaller company, which, as you say, tallies with, with, with what we've seen from China over the last few years, that discomfort that we know President Xi has towards what he called platform companies, these big overarching companies. But either way you look at it, a huge change for Alibaba, a company where Jack Ma had these overarching visions. He wanted the company to last for, he said, 102 years so it could span three centuries. He wanted to be a place where customers would meet, work uh, and live. All of that seems to be in the rearview mirror now that they're going to streamline it down into these six businesses. 
Yeah, the hope, I guess, is that it's a more agile um, workplace that they can streamline decisions, they can have a greater response time, a speedier response time. Claire, but you mentioned the magic word there, Jack Ma. Fascinating that the day that this is announced is in the same week where we see Jack Ma back in mainland China for the first time in, what, more than a year? Yeah, it, w- it was interesting. He sort of appeared out of nowhere, uh, Julia, on Monday visiting a school, uh, talking there about development of education in China. Not a lot of explanation uh, went with that. But of course, uh, he is intrinsically tied up with the fate of Alibaba, the founder, although he doesn't play a day-to-day role uh, in the company anymore. And as I said, it was his infamous speech in October of 2020 criticizing the Chinese government that sort of set off uh, this broader crackdown on tech. And he then disappeared from view for a long period of time. So, look, we don't know if the two are linked, but the timing is certainly very interesting. Yes. Now we watch Amp Financial to see what happens Mm. there. (laughs) Claire Sebastian, thank you for that. Plenty more to come here on First Move. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. In the next hour, top U.S. banking regulators will appear on Capitol Hill to face tough questions on just how and why two U.S. banks collapsed, leading authorities to take emergency measures and protect depositors to ensure the broader stability of the system. Now, it may have just been a handful of U.S. regional banks in question and we were discussing, but the implications for other lenders and their lending could be much larger. Every small bank can expect more scrutiny on their loan terms and perhaps more regulation and red tape in the future. Now, this matters because small banks lend to small businesses and they in turn employ nearly half of all private sector workers. Not only that, they're also responsible for two thirds of job creation, according to the Small Business Administration. Now, economists are concerned that should loans dry up, so could jobs. Joining us now is Mohammed El Arian, economist and president of Queen's College at the University of Cambridge. Mohammed, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Clearly much to discuss, but I want to take a step back because as you pointed out on Twitter, it was a relief to come out of the weekend without any emergency measures or crisis being announced. Is it too early to say we've passed the worst and we've got the all clear? Um, thanks for having me, Julia. Um, I think it's a little bit too early for two reasons. One is because of what's called economic contagion, what you just mentioned. We are yet to see the impact on the real economy, on jobs. Um, Two is it's a question of trust. Banking is ultimately a question of trust and trust has been shaken. So there's some calm, but trust is not fully restored as yet. So I think the worst of the financial dislocation is behind us but the worst of the economic effects are still ahead of us. Yeah, I want to talk about the what I'd call the, the macro and the micro. So we'll get to the implications for, for small bank lending or smaller bank lending. But something else I've seen and has been widely discussed is what's going on in capital markets. So where you go to, to raise money, whether that's as a good quality corporate, for example, what we call investment grade, or if you're a little bit more risky, the high yield market, even... IPOs in the United States, it's all dried up. Is that a temporary phenomenon in your mind, Mohammed, or is that something else we should be watching very closely and, and an indication of a broader concern? So it reflects basic volatility 
in interest rates. Um, the two-year rate, which is supposed to be anchored by the Federal Reserve, has moved in a way that I don't remember ever imagining, not just seeing, imagining in my career. It's been incredibly volatile. If the two years volatile, you can imagine what's happening elsewhere in the interest rate complex. So people step back from volatile market. And that's why we have seen a drying up of bond issuance, a drying up of IPOs. I think it's temporary. I think calm is going to be restored to the interest rate complex. And with that, we're going to see capital markets functioning again. But we've been reminded how fragile the system is. Yeah, because you just simply don't know how to price things. When there's this much volatility, you don't know what to charge for that debt or, or what you're willing to accept to, to lend somebody money um, in reverse. Translate that now to my introduction and what I was talking about, the sort of shot across the bows for all small lenders, that perhaps there's going to be more red tape coming, that there's going to be more scrutiny and and how likely they are to perhaps hold on to the deposits that they have or second guess where they borrow money from in order to lend it out to ordinary businesses or, or individuals. How big a concern now is that? So they have two issues. Issue number one is on the deposit side. And just think, a lot of people are saying, you know what, I trust my bank, my small bank, but isn't it safer to take my deposit to one of the largest banks that are too big to fail? After all, what do I lose in doing this? So what we've seen is a deposit flight from small banks to larger banks. And that makes sense for depositors who are just trying to sleep at night. Um, the problem with that is that it shrinks the balance sheet of the smaller banks, and the smaller banks are not able to lend as much as they have before. And the customers of the smaller banks tend not to be the customers of the big banks. So while the deposits move, the loans do not move. So that's impact number one. Impact number two, the regulators wrongly assumed that these banks were not systemic. They didn't pose a threat to the system as a whole. But it turns out that in the case of, of Silicon Valley Bank, it did pose a risk to the system as a whole. So supervisors and regulators are going to get much more interested looking at the balance sheet of the banks, and that will make the banks more cautious and will probably increase regulation. So banks are getting hit from both sides. So there's the two whammies, as you've sort of quite rightly pointed out there and, and explained, I think, very clearly. Um, what we have seen as well is billions of dollars of money leaving those smaller banks. Some of it's gone into the bigger banks. Some of it's gone into what we call money markets. I just wonder whether you have any sense of um, the propensity to spend. Does that change when you take your money out of a, a smaller bank and you put it into a money market, for example? I just wonder whether it's not just about lending. It's also about consumption as well and whether we see a slowing effect there, too. So, so the, the big money that has moved has been above the 250,000 deposit guarantee. Um, and that is not normally spending money. That's more precautionary money, a bit of savings. Um, so I don't think it will change the spending pattern of the depositors, but it does change the lending pattern. So for example, you rightly said, some money is going out of the banking system into money market funds. Some of it is going into crypto, by the way. Bitcoin has done well um, because there's been inflows into crypto. 
that money doesn't get lent to small and medium-sized businesses. Um, typically, the money market funds goes into high-quality corporates and government bonds, doesn't make it into loans, and crypto stays in the crypto space. So we, we are likely to see a change less in the spending of the depositors and more in the people who relied on those banks. And these are communities, sectors, regions. Um, it can be quite significant. And that's why some people are already increasing the probability of a recession in the U.S. Yeah, more so than even the Federal Reserve itself is predicting, because the gap between what at least investors think uh, the Federal Reserve is going to do in terms of rate changes, let's call it that, because the market's obviously pricing in cuts to interest rates this year. Um, what's right, Mohammed? You're generally on the money when you predict these things. Do you think the Federal Reserve is done? And do you think, despite what investors think, we can rule out cuts this year? Because that gap is big between what the Fed's saying and what markets are thinking. That gap is huge, Julia. I mean, if you look by the end of the year, the difference is a full percentage points. Again, I've never seen this before. Um, it reflects a number of things. One is genuine uncertainty. And you can think of, certainly I can think of multiple scenarios for growth and inflation and therefore interest rates. But it also reflects a general loss of credibility in of the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is engaged in what I think is the biggest policy mistake we've seen for 40 years. Um, people don't believe it anymore. So they are saying, I don't care about the forward guidance that the Fed is giving me. I have my own views, even though the Fed controls those short-term interest rates. So basically, the market is taking on the person who sets those interest rates. It shows you what has happened to credibility of the Fed. And then they're also being tested today on Capitol Hill and elsewhere on their supervision, on their lapses in supervision. So we have both genuine uncertainty but it's compounded and amplified in a massive way by a loss of confidence in the Federal Reserve. Yeah, it's we've gone full circle to where we began the conversation about a total lack of trust. Um, I could ask you how we got into a world where there's this an implicit assumption that any bank that gets into trouble is deemed systemic in order to shore up the whole system, that the Fed doesn't hike interest rates until the very last moment and creates a lot of the instability. Um, and now we're in a situation, to your point, where investors simply say to the Fed, we don't believe you. Um, perhaps the better question, Mohammed, is how do we get out of this? And what are the implications for investors? So short term, there's no easy way out. Um, once you make a big policy mistake, you're in the world of second and third best. You no longer have a first best, which means that whatever you do is imperfect. Whatever you do will have collateral damage and unintended consequences. And that's the world we're in. So I'm afraid that that having dug a hole for itself that's so deep, the Fed can't get out of it quickly. So it's going to have enormous difficulty balancing lowering inflation, maintaining growth, and maintaining financial stability. It's the trilemma, not the dilemma, the trilemma. Um, how do we get out of this over the long term? Through economic growth. Economic growth can solve a lot of things for us, but that's a much longer conversation, Julia. I was about to say, just getting warmed up. And in the short term, keep calm, carry on and buy Bitcoin. No, I would say, you know, <laughs> carry, carry on with a cautious approach to markets. Take advantage of overshoots because markets typically overshoot mm. in, in these circumstances. 
and maintain resilience. Keep on asking yourself not the comfortable question of how much money am I going to make more if if I end up making a mistake, not that I want to make a mistake, but if I end up making a mistake because the world is so uncertain, is my mistake recoverable? Because most mistakes are recoverable over time. If you are not, default, for example, if you have invested in a defaulting company, that's not recoverable. So ask yourself the question, if I end up making a mistake, is it recoverable? That's a really important question when the world is so uncertain. Yeah. Capital preservation, not capital return at this moment. Preservation. Mohammed, great to chat to you as always. Mohammed Alirin there, economist and president of Queen's College at the University of Cambridge. So thank you. Okay, coming up after the break, judicial talks, money walks. And Israeli fintech finally had enough of the instability. Now is moving cash out of Israel. The CEO tells us why next. Welcome back to First Move with a return to Israel, where Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has paused controversial plans to overhaul the judicial system. Those reforms have divided the country and sparked weeks of protests and widespread strikes. It's also prompted a backlash from Israel's vibrant tech sector. Fintech unicorn Papaya Global is one of the country's most successful startups. Its human resources and payroll platform is used in 160 different countries, and it has a valuation of $3.7 billion. But in January, the CEO moved the company's funds out of Israel, blaming the uncertain business climate and political instability. And she's now urging other CEOs to do the same. Einat Giz is the CEO of Papaya Global, and she joins us now. Enoch, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you for your time. Um, just start by describing your call to other CEOs. Why did you feel the need to, to make this decision for your company, but also encourage others to do so? Yeah, hi. So first, I mean, exactly two months ago, a day after our prime minister went live and uh, told everyone, although the public statement was already quite clear, that this judicial reform will harm badly our economy and said that no one understand anything about that and eventually we should trust the government uh, to protect the economy. Honestly, I felt very uncomfortable because I think that eventually, you know, we are business leader, we, we tend to take decisions based on facts. And... Uh, I decided that I'm going to announce publicly uh, that we decided as the company at Papaya Global not to hold any investment funds in Israel. So I think that eventually, you know, as being part of the tech community, this is our responsibility to assure that we are openly sharing things that we are doing, threats that we have uh, with others. And this is exactly what I decided to do. Do other CEOs agree with you about the fears for the future? So I think, you know, I mean, two months during this uh, this period of time, I mean, this is almost like a, a decade in terms of the amount of events that happens and the general kind of environment and the public opinion. I think that if you ask people now, two months later, a lot of them are in much in, in much bigger agreement than they were two months ago. I think at the time we already saw, and I think that the movement was already there, people were fearing to, to say it publicly, 
And I think that in reality, uh, and we saw also the numbers at the time, I think uh, around February, uh, the numbers that has been officially published in Israel, we're talking to uh, on about $2 billion that went out of the country already. So I think that this is a very, very, very complicated issue. Obviously, there are two sides here with very strict uh, opinions uh, about uh, what they think that is right and wrong. But uh, if you're looking on the recent kind of events, I think that there is more and more agreement that we should protect our economy, we should protect our nation, actually, and we should protect our democracy, because it seems that we are going into a place where the world is looking in Israel and asking quite clearly what's going on and starting to lose faith in us. Yeah, I think that's the key point um, about what the judicial reform means, not just in terms of the government's decision to do this and the changes that they make, but where it's leading the country. Because I think that's your point. Where do you see this process leading beyond even, I think, this judicial reform, as important yeah, as it so, is? Yeah, so, so first, I think, and, and you, you said it correctly right, um, I'm not a politician. I'm also not, a, you know, I'm not coming from from the legal side of, of things. I just think that eventually, if you have... Uh, quite a lot of people, almost 50% of the country, that are saying that this judicial reform is not something that they want to put in place. If you have hundreds of people from all around the world, people that were involved heavily in our in, in designing our economy our, uh, our, and, and other uh, things in Israel, that are calling us to stop and eventually have conversation assure that we are doing a judicial reform that everyone or you have a broader consensus, we should do that. And I'm very happy about the decision yesterday to hold the conversation and eventually to assure that, yeah, there are there, there are some conversation in place. Honestly, I don't know if this is too little too late and if we will be able to bridge currently the huge kind of um, uh, issues and, and kind of the, the huge gaps that we already have in between the parties. But I do think that eventually, even if you're doing changes, you cannot just ignore the noises around you because the cause of mistake can be fatal to this country. And, you know, Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. We need to keep it as democracy in the Middle East. I think this is one of the key points um, and a very, very important factor on our existence. Yeah, as you said, you want to keep the politics out of it. Um, but do you trust Prime Minister Netanyahu when he says, look, there will be a debate about this? Or do you fear that a month will go by and the same issue will be back on the table and there will be those hardliners that, that are continuing to push for this that say we won't back down in the face of, of protest, however potent that protest is? So, so first, I don't know. I don't know if I, I mean I'm, I'm, you know, I'm coming to or I'm hearing everything that happens around, and I'm. I do hope that those are real efforts and those are really kind of pure efforts to solve this. From the other hand, less than 48 hours ago, uh, our prime minister decided all of a sudden to fire our Ministry of Finance, uh, sorry, our Ministry of Defense, um, just because he was stating clearly and loud that the judicial reform and the current state, this judicial reform and the impact that we have on the military in Israel is becoming very, very critical for our defense. So I think until now, you know, I mean, uh, we, we heard yesterday that uh, the judicial reform is being put in hold in order to create conversation. But from the other hand, we still don't have a Ministry of Defense. I mean, nobody said that it was a mistake to eventually to, to dismiss him. 
Um, and I think that eventually, currently, we need to assure that, you know, Israel, with, I mean, military in Israel is a very, very important thing. Obviously, our defense is a key factor to our economy, to our life, to, to everything that we are doing. So I do hope that eventually the efforts will come side by side. So we need to have a clear leadership and a very, very bold leadership these days that assure that we protect the interest of the government, oh, the country first, before the interest of the government, before this judicial reform. And I do hope that those conversations will lead to something that is different from the current state. I don't know, honestly. I, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic because I should be as a founder, but I, I do I do hope that it will turn out differently than the recent conversation that we had in the last two months. Yeah, but as a founder of a business, to your point, you also have to be prudent and you have to be cautious and you have to protect your workers and protect your business and make changes um, to reflect that too. One of the things that you were saying was to every startup, pull 20% of, of the money that you have in the banks out because that will also send a message. And, and as you said, defence is important to the economy, but so's financial stability is the United States has had a sharp lesson in, I think, over the last two weeks. If this comes back on the table and these reforms again are, are pushed, will you repeat that message? And, and what more can you do to send a message, I think, to the government that, that this is the wrong direction? Do you believe the protest will continue? So first, yes, the protest hasn't stopped. The protest will continue because we want to send a clear message that we are here to protect democracy. We are not here, we are not representing any political side. Honestly, we're not here to eventually replace the government. We are here to protect democracy. We are here to protect the tech nation. So protest will stop until we will see any real kind of efforts and real change uh, and real agreement because i mean we won't currently stand still and just let it go by itself so we are de and, and definitely as as to, to your point i think that if this judicial reform will come to real actions if we will believe that this is going to a place where they are continuing with their uh, original intent um, I strongly think that it will impact Israel economy. We saw it already with the volatility of the shekel versus the, the US dollars in the last few weeks. Um, volatility that we only saw in the past when we had quite a lot of uh, uh, issues on the political side uh, that, that impacted uh, this um, the volatility. So I think that we need to assure that first, as tech uh, nation and obviously as someone that works for uh, on, on the tech sectors that we protect our investors funds um israel and, and the tech sector in israel has raised more than 50 billion dollar in the last five years and nobody eventually will reward us or nobody will continue to invest in israel if we won't protect those funds in the best efforts that we can do yeah eloquently said and this is not about the politics in your mind. This is not about uh, demonstrating against one individual or, or the prime minister in this case. This is about ensuring um, the business community and the startup community remains vibrant as it is. Um, your business is also fascinating. So you're going to come on as the CEO of Papaya Global and talk to me about your business, Thank please, um, sometime soon. But we appreciate we appreciate your insights. Thank you. Thank you very much. there, the CEO of Papaya Global. We'll speak soon, please. Thank you. Back up to this. tragedy in Tennessee. Six more innocent lives lost in a school shooting in Nashville on Monday. 
The surveillance video shows the shooter opening fire on glass doors to gain access to a private Christian elementary school. Authorities say the shooter was a former student who used AR-style weapons and had detailed maps of the building. Amara Walker has the details. I don't know how somebody could go through with doing something like that, and especially children, like, just, it's disgusting. And I, yeah, I just, I have no words. This morning, another community is in mourning after what police are calling a targeted attack by 28-year-old Audrey Hale, a former student who showed up on campus to execute a pre-written plan. It indicates that there was going to be uh, shootings at multiple locations, uh, and, um, and the school was one of them. There was actually a map uh, of the school detailing surveillance uh, entry points and how this was going to be carried out on this day. Metro Nashville Police releasing more than two minutes of surveillance video showing the moment Hale arrived on campus. In the video, Hale is seen driving through the parking lot of the Covenant School in a silver Honda Fit. The security camera footage then cuts to video of Hale opening fire on glass double doors at an entrance of the school before climbing in. As the video continues, you see Hale start roaming the hallways. Police say Hale had three weapons, an AR-style rifle, an AR-style pistol, and a handgun, along with significant ammunition. Police say they believe two of those weapons may have been obtained legally. Officers say when they arrived on scene, Hale fired on them from a second-story window, one patrol car taking a bullet to the windshield. Police say two officers confronted Hale on the second floor, and Hale was killed. During the shooting, Avery Myrick was texting with her mother, a teacher at the school. I texted her, and I said just like what was going on. She said she was hiding in the closet and that there was shooting all over. She later spoke to her mother by phone and learned she was safe. This morning, we're learning more about the victims. The three nine-year-olds who were killed, Evelyn Dickhouse, William Kenny, Hallie Scruggs. Also killed 60-year-old Catherine Kuntz, who, according to the school's website, was the head of the school. Police also identifying 61-year-old Mike Hill, a custodian, and 61-year-old Cynthia Peak, a substitute teacher. Police continue to investigate a motive, but say they have a theory. There's some belief that there was some resentment for having to go to that school. Uh, don't have all the details of that just yet. And, uh, and that's why this incident occurred. I'm Walker reporting there. We'll be right back. Just in, a new indictment against FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried. U.S. prosecutors adding bribery to the list of charges against the 31-year-old. He had previously pleaded not guilty to eight criminal counts over the sudden collapse of FTX. In the meantime, U.S. stocks are up and running this Tuesday. Cautiousness, I think, is what we can say, with the S&P set to break a three-session winning streak. It's down by around two-tenths of one percent in early trade, an uptick in bond yields pressuring stocks. Market participants now seeing a more than 50 percent chance that the Fed will raise rates at its next meeting if 
the banking outlook continues to stabilise. That's up substantially from just last week. I think volatile is the best word to describe all of that. In the meantime, a British parliamentary committee kicking off a day of transatlantic hearings on the recent banking turmoil. Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey telling MPs that the failure of Silicon Valley Bank was the fastest collapse of a lender since the bearings debacle some 30 years ago. U.S. bank regulators set to face tough questioning in the Senate today, too, over the bank failures taking place under their watch also. Rahel Solomon joins me now. Rahel, my fear is that it's going to be a little TikTok-esque, like we saw last week. It was more of a, a verdict rather than a hearing. But what can we expect today? Mm. Well, Julia, those hearings expected to begin in just about seven minutes from now. And so this and these hearings, we will hear from banking regulators at future hearings. We'll hear from former executives of SVB. But what we expect to hear from and we can show you who exactly we expect to hear from is regulators explain what went wrong, what happened from their vantage point. But also, of course, the big question is why didn't regulators themselves catch this. And to that point, on the one hand, based on prepared remarks, which I I should say, by the way, we expect the bulk of comments to come from the FDIC based on prepared remarks. But in terms of why didn't regulators catch this, you know, in the remarks we read, most say, you know, the investigations are ongoing, essentially not really pointing to anything in particular, but it's in the comments from the Federal Reserve, which actually do try to sort of uh, shift some of the blame, saying we actually did raise the alarm about these concerns. So this is page five and six of uh, the Fed's comments, uh, Michael Barr's comments. And on page six, he starts to point to, out of 10 pages, he starts to point to uh, the events that led up to this, saying that as an early of end of 2021, supervisors began to grow concerned and began to raise risk, uh, ra- raise alarms rather about some of the liquidity risks that these banks were sitting on, then pointing to five or six different events, five or six different dates before ultimately saying that in mid-February 2023, the staff presented to the Federal Reserve's Board of Governors their concerns about rising interest rates and the impacts on the banks, but also specifically SVB's liquidity risk. Now, that was in February. Of course, we know that SVB failed in March 10th, I believe it was. And so the question is, Did they wait too long? Was it, by this point, was it enough time to actually do something? As one economist told me when I asked about this story, he said, look, we're regulators asleep at the wheel. So even if they did raise these concerns, the questions are, did they do it soon enough? Yeah. But that's fascinating, isn't it? Because what that says to me is, and I've seen plenty of people saying this is about a lack of supervision or incoherent supervision. You've got the supervisors pointing at the regulators and the regulators pointing at the supervisors. Um, More of all, perhaps. Rahel Solomon, thank you very much for that. We shall see. And finally, here on First Move, there's a new theory about water on the moon. Chinese scientists think the moon could be covered in water trapped inside tiny glass beads, which were formed when asteroids crashed into the surface. They suggest the beads were infused with water after being hit by solar winds, creating a deep reservoir of this precious resource. If the science checks out, this knowledge could help astronauts harvest water on the moon in future. How exciting. That's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 